Come on, follow me, follow me, follow me, come on. I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. On the 4th of August 2020, for her 36th birthday, I gave my special niece, Avine, the gift of a tree. It's a holly tree. Yeah, do you like it? Yeah, I do. What do you know about holly trees? It's got green little leaves and it's got little berries on it. And what colour are the berries? And they're little red berries. Mmm. And... They're beautiful, and the birds eat them. They do indeed. But there's no berries on this one. No, there aren't. <laughs> You're right. Where are they? It seems I'm not alone in giving the gift of a holly tree. It's something that Aina Nilana, in her role as president of the Tree Council of Ireland, certainly stands behind. This year, as part of National Tree Week, the charity made a free holly tree available to every primary school in the country. This year, the Tree Council of Ireland gave holly trees as the tree for National Tree Day. And each year for National Tree Day, we give a tree, a native Irish tree. There's a whole list of them going back for the last 10 years since I've been president the first time. And now it was Holly's turn this year. So we gave every school that wanted, we gave out something like 1,400 holly trees, which we sent out to the post to all the different schools that wanted them. Why did you give out holly trees? Why not? They're a native species, they're good for biodiversity, they've got berries on them which the mistletoe washes love and they will grow anywhere. Now we get them only little small things we were giving them so one didn't know whether what kind of tree you were getting, whether the male or a female. But you know that's part of the surprise isn't it? And the kid took them out, planted them and in 10 years time there'll be holly trees at every school in Ireland. Now at the time I gave my niece Avine her holly tree, which was in the month of August, I didn't know whether it was a male or a female plant. Only the female bears fruit. And I wasn't even sure if there ever would be any berries. After all, you need both male and female, plus the help of a pollinator, to get the job done. It was August anyway, so you wouldn't expect berries in August. But what you would expect is to see what you get before the berries. The berries are the fruit, and obviously there has to be flowers and then there's fruit. But there are boy holly trees and girl holly trees. And boys don't have babies, and that essentially is what the <laughs> berries are, because inside in each berry there's a seed, and it's only the females have berries, only the females will produce these. And it's impossible to know in the beginning. When I sent out those ones to all the schools, they were only a year old. So, I mean, it's potluck, it's 50 
50-50, which one you're going to get. And it was potluck with you as well. You bought the thing in a pot. It was August, but there was no berries. But you said, oh, it's August, there's no berries. But there never may be berries on it at all. It may be a boy, and if it's a boy, it's a boy. But then, you need boys, of course, if you're going to have any berries anyway. And the male flowers have, have pollen in them. And this pollen then has to go to the female and fertilise the female flower in order for us to get berries. So, if there were no boys at all, if there were no boys at all, there would be no berries either. Mind you, you don't need as many boys as girls. Sure, one male holly tree in the parish would do the job, and all the females, because the bees would be busy carrying the pollen around, and that's how it works. Did you ever go back to check what it actually turned out to be? Were there berries, or was it a boy? I can confirm, Aina, that it is a female. There are red berries on the tree. I am sure she's delighted. That's great. We're all delighted. Hey, that's good. <laughs> Up the women every time. <laughs> The species of holly in question is, to botanists around the globe, best known by its scientific name, Ilex aquifolium, which translates as the needle-leaved evergreen oak. The holly is not an oak, of course, though the notched shape of the leaves of both trees do bear at least a passing resemblance to each other. There's no mistaking the holly tree. It's one of our biggest evergreen trees that grows as a native here in Ireland. And it's a common constituent of many of our lowland woodlands. With its shiny, spiny leaves, it is a remarkable tree. And you can understand the pleasure that our ancestors took in seeing that plant surviving right through the winter, being covered in snow. It always gave you hope that you know, life was going to return at some point in the, the following spring and summer. Dr Matthew Jebb is director of the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin. So the holly is, a, is an extraordinary tree with its spiny leaves. And there's a lot of theories and tales as to, you know, do these leaves prevent browsing animals from grazing on the leaves? And some people have reported the fact that sometimes a holly tree appears to have spinier leaves lower down than it does at the top of the canopy, where, of course, the deer and other browsing animals can't reach. But in fact, that's been proven to be not an accurate representation. So... The spininess of these leaves appears to be an adaptation that we're not really sure what its purpose is. But another idea is it actually sheds the electrostatic charge. When a storm is approaching, a problem that a lot of plants sense with a lot of electricity in the air is that water is stripped off the leaf by the electrostatic charges. So having spines acts like little tiny lightning conductors sat on a building. They disperse the charge and remove it. The other amazing thing about a tree is if you look carefully on a holly tree, every now and again you'll find a branch that has got different leaves. They can be a lot spinier or a lot smoother. Some will have almost no spines at all. And what we've got growing in collections such as the National Botanic Gardens is a huge range of different cultivars of holly. These are varieties of holly that have been sourced from the wild. Sometimes they're much spinier. Sometimes they have yellow fruits. Sometimes they have almost pale, white, pinkish fruits. And this variation appears on the tree. It doesn't come from seeds. It comes from the tree itself. And if we look at the canopy, we can sometimes find a branch with far spinier or far smoother leaves. And we can literally take a cutting. We can snip that off with a pair of secateurs, stick it in a flower pot, and it will root, and we can grow a brand new variety of holly. Holly was an important tree in Ireland long before the Christian period. In the Celtic tree calendar, it symbolises the eighth month of the year. 
the belief being that following midsummer, the holly had won the battle over light with its rival, the oak, gaining control of the darker months to come. The tree was also widely believed to offer protection, as Matthew has said, against both lightning strikes and evil spirits. A mighty and mystical plant to be sure. Small wonder, therefore, that the early Christian church in Ireland sought to co-opt its power for its own celebrations. Bringing holly into the house at Christmas is something lots of people do. I mean, they have their Christmas trees, but they bring holly in as well. And if you were to ask them why they do this, they might tell you, well, it's Christmas and the prickles on the holly would remind us of the crown of thorns and the berries on the holly might remind us of the blood of Christ. If they were to be pressed for it, they would give the thing a Christian symbolism. But you know something? It goes further back than that, much further back than that. Bringing holly into your house is a pagan thing and it goes back 5,000 years. So can you imagine now when people came to Ireland way back and those times the country was covered in forest. The forests were deciduous woodland in the main, but holly is actually an evergreen tree. So holly had its leaves on it in the winter time. Now those Neolithic people were very concerned, you know, with the length of the day. They built new grange, they measured when the sun went down, the height of the sun every day in the sky, when it set, when it rose. And as the winter progressed, the sun sank lower and lower and lower. And how were you to know was it ever going to come back? Was this the one year that somehow the sun god would take vengeance on you for some crime you didn't even know you committed and the sun would never come back? So there was always great consternation on the 22nd of December, the shortest day. Was the sun going to come back? They had their measurements, they had Newgrange, they had the light box. And then the 23rd, do you know something? I don't think it's sinking anymore. The 24th definitely isn't 25th. So it's coming back. The sun god hasn't abandoned us. So they went out to the woods to see where was the life, where was something that you could actually use to celebrate the fact that the sun god, that Lou, hadn't abandoned them. And what did they find? But the holly. The holly with the lovely green shiny leaves and they brought them into their houses to celebrate. So when we do this today, this is adoring the sun god who has not abandoned us, didn't abandon us in Neolithic times and hasn't abandoned us today. That's why we bring holly into our houses at Christmas. Holly is one of two native Irish plants that have long been synonymous with Christmas. The other is ivy. Both plants have been cherished for centuries as symbols of hope and rebirth, resolutely and defiantly bearing their vibrant green leaves throughout the cold, dark winter months a time when most other plants lie dead or dormant. Proud talismans of eternal life, as it were. So it's no wonder that they have become synonymous with our Yuletide celebrations and are even the subjects of one of our most beloved Christmas carols. The holly and the ivy When they are both full-grown Of all the trees that are in the wood The holly bears the crown Ivy is a climbing plant, rapidly ascending, then cloaking walls and trees. There are actually two main wild species of ivy that are native to Ireland. Both look very similar. One is the common ivy, also known widely as English ivy, with the scientific name Hydra helix, meaning spiral ivy. The other is Hydra hibernica, which literally means Irish ivy. 
Ivy is an extraordinary plant. It epitomises what a climber can do. With its tiny little roots, it grips onto the bark of a tree that it will grow up. And if you look at a, an ivy plant, you will see that it has very divided, almost what we call palmate leaves. They look like little hands as it's a climber. As it climbs the tree, once it gets towards the top, it's right up in the bright sunlight, the top of the canopy of a tree. Its leaves will turn into almost little oval, rounded leaves. And this is actually a genetic switch. In fact, if you were to take a cutting from the very top of an ivy plant in the top of a tree when it's begun flowering, it will always form a bush afterwards, and you can grow it as a bush in a flower bed. But essentially, this switch from a climber to flowering and fruiting is one of its major characteristics. And the other extraordinary feature of it, of course, is it flowers right at the end of the year. In November, December, we see all its flowers out being visited by flies, because not many bees and butterflies are around at that time of the year. And the fruits then develop in January, February, and a very important food source they are to things like wood pigeons. So the ivy is essentially a flowerer and a fruiter in the middle of the winter. And this actually betrays its tropical origins, because it turns out that ivy is one member of a huge family called the Araliaceae, which are nearly all tropical. They grow in the, the tropics as great lianas, and this one species has made its way up into northern Europe, and here it is still flowering and fruiting in midwinter. So it does make it an extraordinary feature, almost a characteristic plant that flowers and fruits in the middle of the winter when everything else is either dormant, it's done its flowering and fruiting in the spring and summer seasons. Ivy flowers are often a lifeline for nectar-feeding insects at a time of year when food supplies are scarce. It blooms from September to November, considerably later than the average for a native Irish plant providing a welcome late autumn boost for bees in particular, as well as for beekeepers. Hello, Derek. Hello, Hannah. How are you? I see you've got an honesty box outside your wonderful cottage. I do. <laughs> You're very trusting. I am very, very trusting. I think you have to be. You have to be. What kind of honey have you got here? I have wildflower honey and soft set honey out for sale. Yeah. Does anybody ever take it without paying? Uh, occasionally. Okay. Not too often, <laughs> I hope, in, in these parts. No. No ivy honey, I see. No, not today. Uh, I have it inside. Well, come on, what are we waiting for? Let's go on. I want to find out all about ivy honey. Come with me. Hannah's Bees is a business run by Hannah Backmo, a cork-based beekeeper with a true passion for edible gardening, nature and sustainability. As part of her hive-to-home operation, Hannah manages several hives across East and South Cork with 50 honeybee colonies producing products that include honey, beeswax and propolis. One of her most popular speciality products is ivy honey, made by her bees from the nectar of this very special plant. The bees uh, are very good at surviving, of course, and this is why they collect nectar and make honey in the first place. So they, they gather all that up and keep it in, in the hive over winter. And that's why we have the colonies surviving with the queen over winter, as opposed to bumblebees and, uh, and wasps, where only the, the queens survive. So first of all, they've spent the whole summer collecting nectar. But then it's, of course, the pollen. The mm. pollen the bees need in order to rear their young. They don't feed the larvae honey as such. They actually feed them brood food. And in order to produce brood food, the bees need to eat a lot of pollen, fresh pollen. 
Uh, so this time of the year, they're really busy collecting the last of the pollen before the winter comes in, and that's the ivy pollen. Mm. And where are they getting that from? From the ivy plant. Yes. It's everywhere. I think it's one of those plants, except for, for blackberries, where you can look around, and you can be anywhere nearly in Ireland, and you can look around and you, you will see an ivy plant. Mm. They're on walls, on, on trees, they're literally everywhere. And they are also everywhere around here. We have a lot of greenery around here, um, so, so there's, there's plenty of ivy here. Are you producing an ivy honey? Yes, I do. <laughs> Many beekeepers don't take the ivy honey off because it's the last of the honey. It's quite tricky to process. Why? Um, because it crystallizes. It's, it's very, very high glucose uh, nectar honey uh, that we get from the ivy plant. And high glucose honeys, they crystallize very, very quickly. So they become literally rock hard inside in the hive. And many beekeepers, they just don't want to, uh, to bother with it. They say they leave it for the bees to eat over winter and into the springtime then as well. I do take off an extra crop of, of ivy honey. And how can you be sure it's ivy honey? You can smell it. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. It's really, really strong. It's very potent. Very strong, very, very spicy taste. And you can, you can really smell it. And also, of course, you know that it's ivy because it's just about the only thing that's flowering at this time of the year where the bees are getting nectar from. I've seen them go on fuchsia a little bit. But apart from fuchsia, it's, it's ivy at this time of year. Well, now, you know the way that the marketing people are always saying, this honey is particularly good for this and that honey is particularly good for the other. What is ivy honey good for? It's, it's good for uh, throat complaints. And it, it's quite funny, actually, that Mother Nature has designed our honeys, the, the two of the most kind of potent, most medicinal honeys that we get in Ireland are heather and ivy honey, and they're produced at the time of the year where we need them most. <laughs> so both of those honeys are very, very good for a lot of complaints, respiratory problems, throat problems in particular. Mm. And is it popular? Yes and oh, no. Oh, you had to think about that. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's a yes and no kind of a question because a lot of people have never tried it, so they don't know that they, they like it or okay. not. But this one is, is very distinctive. It reminds me of Christmas. Uh, it reminds me of gingerbread cookies. It's just got that really spicy kind of flavour. And it's a bit chewy as well, which is really nice. I like that. The honeybee is not the only beneficiary of ivy. In October of 2021, the first official sighting of the ivy bee was recorded at the Raven Nature Reserve in County Wexford. Solitary bee has expanded to Ireland. It's called the ivy bee. It first arrived in England in uh, 2001 and it spread up England. So we think it has expanded now to Wicklow, Wexford area. And it's up as far as British Bay at the minute. And there's great excitement watching it because when other things are going into hibernation, it's busy and dependent on the ivy. Ruth Wilson is the farmland pollinator officer working with the National Biodiversity Data Centre on the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan. She spoke to me about the importance of ivy to pollinators and therefore biodiversity as a whole. Ivy sometimes overlooked, I would say, but it is just fantastic. This time of year in the autumn, hedgerows, forests, even our, our yards, our gardens, you can find ivy. The flower is beautiful and it's got quite a strong smell. If you, if you take a sniff, um, it's got quite a strong smell and that helps to draw in the pollinators. 
fantastic just at this time of the year. The bumblebees, for example, will be going into hibernation. So the queen bumblebee, she goes in till the spring. So really critical for her to get nice and plump this time of the year, to get lots of pollen and nectar just to keep her going over the winter. Also hoverflies, fantastic on ivy and the solitary bees as well. Honeybees are a managed species. They do go into a quieter time in the winter. Mm. Um, they're not a conservation species for us. They're not in decline, they're actually on the increase. Um, so our real role is to raise awareness and do conservation action for our 101 wild pollinating bees. And you would say that ivy is very important for them? Critical, yes. Pollinators in the landscape, they really need food from when they come out from their overwintering state. Solitary bees will be in little nests um, and they need pollen and nectar from early spring right through to late autumn. So that's where the ivy will be fantastic in the autumn. And it's not just the insects. Both plants are important for the survival of many native bird species too. Just walking through to my back garden here now. Take care not to slip. It's very icy. It was absolutely freezing last night. Snow on the ground. The first snow of the winter here in early December. Temperatures went well below zero. And I know that my garden birds are suffering as a result. I see them coming to the feeders more and more. But also I see them taking advantage of some of these plants in my garden. It's early December. Temperatures have plummeted overnight. And the first snow of the winter has fallen. What better day for ornithologist Niall Hatch to take stock of his garden in North County Wicklow. Niall is very proud of his holly tree and the ivy that adorns his back wall, not least because of the lifeline they provide to local bird life. We couldn't have picked a better day here in my back garden. The snow has been falling at night. It's very crisp, very wintry scene. And in front of us here, we have my little holly tree in the garden. I'm very proud of it. And you can see how proud it's standing despite the snow. It looks so vibrant because of the shape and structure and the glossiness of the leaves. Actually, the snow hasn't stuck to it in the same way it has to the rosemary bush that's just beside it or to my sage plants that are looking a bit the worst for wear. The main thing that draws the eye, in the, especially in this kind of white and green scene, is those vibrant red berries. Just look how inviting they look. Mm. <laughs> we mustn't eat them, of course. They're, they're not good for us humans. They're quite toxic indeed. Uh, but for the birds, they're a real lifesaver. And indeed, already I've seen some of my hungry blackbirds coming down to feed on those because of course there are no worms available for them right now the ground is frozen underfoot and so they have to resort to eating this fruit so it's been actually great to see the holly tree doing what it's supposed to do feeding the birds and therefore propagating itself now this tree itself I think was planted by a bird I didn't plant this tree it grew itself and I decided to leave it where it is it's in a very nice location as you can see there just beside my hedge Indeed. but it, it, it arrived there presumably in the form of bird droppings because that of course <laughs> is how the holly is spread those lovely red berries, they're not there for decoration. They're not there so that we humans will enjoy them for Christmas, much as we do. They're actually a bribe for the birds. Their little nutrition package, it contains lots of energy, lots of carbohydrates, lots of fat, lots of vitamins that those birds need to fuel them. And of course, what the tree wants to happen is for those berries to be consumed. And without being too indelicate, when the bird eats them, they very quickly go in one end and out the other, <laughs> wrapped up in a nice neat package of fertilizer around the seeds. And that's how holly is propagated. What is it about the hollyberries that makes them so attractive to birds? 
Now that berry has been honed by millions of years of evolution to be exactly the meal that a hungry blackbird or song thrush or robin wants to eat. It's very high in calories. It's actually very high in sugar, particularly. We humans, if we were to eat a holly berry, and again, nobody should do that, they are toxic, but they're actually apparently quite sweet, although they're hidden behind a layer of these really bitter chemicals that would make you spit them out because this plant doesn't want mammals eating it because our teeth would crush the seeds. However, birds apparently cannot taste those bitter chemicals. They just taste the sweetness. And this is where the red berries and the redness of them really comes into play because the eyes of a blackbird, which is a member of the thrush family, a typical songbird, they're actually 40 times better at distinguishing between different shades of red than the human eye. So we humans, we like to think we have very good colour vision, but blackbirds can actually de determine the difference between different shades of red 40 times better than we can. And they're able to do that because that tells them precisely when that berry is at the moment of peak ripeness. So when there's the maximum amount of sugar, the maximum amount of min minerals and vitamins in there, that's really the message that the plant is giving to the bird that I'm ripe for the picking. My berries are ready to be eaten. Please eat them and then spread the seed around. So that's really what's going on. But how can birds eat berries that are poisonous to humans and other mammals? Holly has various, I suppose, strategies and defences to make sure that the right creature eats the berries. It wants birds, particularly thrushes and species like that, to consume them. It doesn't want mammals eating them. And so to, to do that, it has a couple of things that evolution has granted it. First of all, it has very spiny leaves, which in some ways deter herbivores from grazing on the plant, but also makes it much harder for mammals to climb up. Birds, of course, can just fly in and perch on the branches. So they have ready access to those berries. But the other thing that the plant has in those berries is toxin. They are quite toxic. They contain various chemicals, including a high concentration of theobromine, which is actually one of the chemicals that's found in chocolate. Uh, and in high concentrations, it's not good for humans, but it's actually much worse for dogs. So holly berries particularly are very bad news for dogs if they eat them in the same way that dogs shouldn't eat chocolate. It's because of that chemical, the theobromine. Birds can consume poisonous berries without any ill effects, whereas we humans would suffer much worse consequences if we tried. And there's several reasons. Well, first of all, birds have quite a different digestive system to the ones that we have. They're able to absorb different nutrients than we are. They're more efficient at extracting certain chemicals while leaving other ones behind. And the other thing they have going for them is that their digestion generally is far more rapid than it is for us. When a mammal, like a human or a dog or whatever the case may be, eats fruit, and berries after all are fruit, they stay in our stomachs often for several hours before they make their passageway through our digestive system, through the intestines and out the other end with all the nutrients having absorbed into our bodies. For birds, it's much faster. It just takes a few minutes in some cases and so the food isn't sitting there long enough for some of the, the more dangerous toxins I suppose to leach out and to get into the bird system as well. So it's a much faster process and they have a much more robust digestive system. And it's not just the holly. Niall is also keen to allow ivy grow up the walls. I do, and I'm very, very fond of it. I see that some of my neighbours on their back walls and, 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 and the other gardens, they've torn it down. I'm very proud to have my ivy there because every summer that's where my blue tits nest. I have a nest box that I put up on the wall behind me. It's quite a, quite a high wall. It's about, I'd say, about 10, 11 feet high. Uh, and uh, ivy's climbed all the way up it, and I have a nest box tucked in there, hidden behind the ivy, and you can see the blue tits coming and going and uh, nesting in that hole. Nice and secure. You'd never know they were there. Uh, I know they're there because I put the nest box up, uh, but most predators don't notice them at all. We have lots of cats roaming around the gardens. I don't have any cats myself, but the neighbours' cats do get into the garden uh, and often see them prowling around, but they don't notice the nest box either. And indeed, the blackbirds that eat my holly berries, they actually nest on a ledge just below that blue tit nest box. They build their own nest just on, on the wall there. Again, the ivy is protecting them. 
even now today on a very snowy cold day the temperature is below zero around me at the moment I'm looking at the ivy and I can actually see insect activity among those leaves there are small little flies and also little I think little weevil like creatures sort of walking around on the leaves at the moment and that's because that plant is providing them shelter from that cold weather as well it's a little bit warmer inside the ivy than it is outside those those leaves are trapping some of the heat in they're also absorbing some of the rays of the sun weak though they are to keep them warm and again like the holly there's no snow on the ivy I notice when there's snow on the other plants around me and that's one of the most important things about ivy is that it supports so many native insects that then in turn become food for birds and other native creatures that will feed on them and that's really the key to so many species surviving the winter so for example a bird like a wren I have a wren that lives in my garden and it simply couldn't survive if I didn't have my holly and my ivy here in the garden supporting insects that it needs to feed on even just this morning I was watching the poor thing flitting around the garden snow everywhere below zero and it still has to find dozens of insects that morning in order to survive it's depleted its energy reserves overnight so those insects are an absolute lifeline for it Looking at my ivy as well, I see something else interesting, another sign of change happening there at the moment with it. There's little buds, little clusters of initial parts of berries forming as well. And that's one of the really interesting things about ivy too. It has a, a it, it's very late been producing its berries and those berries usually arrive around November, December, but they tend to be left behind. So when I saw the blackbird this morning in the garden, it went straight for the holly berries. It didn't go for the ivy berries. They're not quite ripe yet, but they'd still be edible. Normally they stay in my garden, I've noticed until February or maybe even March and then they become absolute lifeline for certain species. Wood pigeons absolutely adore them, they gorge themselves on them and there's a lovely little warbler called a black cap. Um, I'm sure some listeners won't be uh, familiar with that bird. It's a member of the warbler family, it's a sort of a beigey grey coloured bird. The male has a black little skull cap on top of his head and the female has a rusty red cap on top of her head and ivy berries really are the difference between life and death for that species. When they find uh, an ivy plant that has berries on it they'll defend it almost to the death from other birds because that's a species that really isn't supposed to be in Ireland during the winter months. It's supposed to be, originally at least, migrating to the Mediterranean. What's happened in recent years, just over the last couple of decades, the population of blackcaps that nest in Central Europe, many of those now migrate to Ireland and to Britain for the winter. Some evolutionary uh, quirk has happened. We've seen some mutant gene has caused them to migrate the wrong direction. They come to feed on bird tables and gardens and particularly on ivy berries. Now those ivy berries, they're incredibly calorific. Would you believe, Derek, that ivy berries contain as many calories gram for gram as a Mars bar? And if you look at a bird like a wood pigeon, it's eating far more than the equivalent of a Mars bar's worth of ivy berries every day when it's feeding. It's well, well examples of that. So that would be the equivalent. If you look at the difference in size between us and a wood pigeon, that would be like us eating dozens of Mars bars in one sitting. Uh, and that's, that just shows you how much energy these birds need to keep warm, to keep flying around the place, to keep themselves safe and secure on the cold winter days. So it shows just how important ivy is. Now, one of the problems I encounter, and I know that many people around the country do as well, when the pigeons are feeding on the ivy berries, and the, and the berries, unlike the holly, they're not red, they're very, very deep purple, almost black. And when the birds feed on them, as I said earlier, it's very quickly through the digestive system in one end and out the other. And not all the chemicals are absorbed, just the, the key nutrients, the rest passes through. And unfortunately, one of the main things that passes through in the pigeon droppings is that vibrant purple colour. And it stains my patio, it stains all over my car, uh, and it can be quite uh, discolouring on the fence and things like that. So I do have to wash it off quite quickly. But that's a small price to pay for benefiting such wonderful birds and having the beauty of these two plants in my garden. I love them. A small price to pay indeed. So, as is often the case in the botanical world, the charms of both holly and ivy really boil down to the propagation of the species through the exploitation 
or bribery, if you prefer, of animals, be it a payoff of nutrient-rich fruit or energy-laden nectar. But the attractions of these evergreen plants extend far beyond the animal world. When it comes to new life, for generations, parents have also been inspired by them. So my name is Holly. My mum has told me that mum and dad chose it because they found out I was going to be a girl at Christmas. It was between Holly and Robin and Holly won the upper hand, I think. So <laughs> my dad is also kind of into plants. So uh, maybe that had a, a bit of a, a tie in it as well. So um, yeah, yeah. And do you like the name Holly? I've always liked it. And people, when I say my name is Holly, if they ask my name, uh, they always say, oh, that's a lovely name. So I think it's kind of a appreciated name all around. I don't know why it just, people seem to kind of smile when they hear mm. it almost. So it's nice. Holly Clark is a botanist who works at Cara Nurseries in County Kildare. That's the customer's favourite comment to make if they ask my name and I say Holly, they, every time it's, oh, that's a very fitting name for garden centre and all that. So born to do it, I always say. And can I ask you a question? Are you an expert on Holly? Yeah, I know quite a bit. I think so. I'd be confident in Holly's. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's in a name? Botanical names have long been popular, especially for girls. I'm sure most of us know a violet, rose, heather, lily, willow, daisy, poppy or jasmine, for example. Traditionally, both holly and ivy have been amongst the most enduring girls' names of all. But how popular are they today? In 2021, the Central Statistics Office recorded no fewer than 95 newborn babies registered with the name Ivy across the country. Not bad at all, but Holly proved more popular still, with 160 registrations nationwide. Statistically speaking, that means that in 2021, Ivy was the 63rd most popular name for baby girls in Ireland, but was roundly beaten by Holly at number 31. Holly and Ivy are still very much at the forefront of Christmas tradition today. Throughout the festive season, homes across the country will be festooned with them, while front doors, mantelpieces and graves will be adorned with wreaths fashioned from their glossy leaves. But just where does all this plant material come from? Come this way, Derek, and I'll show you just how the place evolved and what we planted and the various things we've done. I'll just open this gate for you. Meath-based farmer Joe Barry is passionate about holly. The place sort of evolved because we built the house first and it was on this particular site because everyone told me, the older farmers and everyone say, when you're building a house, go out in the field and look at where the cattle lie and where they prefer to lie. That's where you build your house. And they were spot on. We've got all the solar gain. You get, it's the warmest spot in the area. And it's, it's a nice one. And when you think about it, the cattle know best. You know, they're out there. Where's the comfortable place to be? So therefore, that's where you build your house. And therefore, we, the garden then evolved. And we like to grow our own vegetables and our own, as much of our own grub as possible. Now, we've a small wood here where I planted a whole pile of conifers. And there's a complete mixture of... All the spruces, Norway spruce, Sitka spruce, lodgepole pine, um, western red cedar, 
There are about 12 different varieties, and they're all in little clumps and copses. We have a lot of linear woodland, in other words, long lengths of woodland. Um, I knew that this was going to become exposed as the trees grew up. So I said holly and hazel would be ideal as an understory plant. So I planted along the edges, and as you can see along there, there's a variety of different trees. There's variegated holly, there's the native Ilex aquifolium, and then various other varieties, and we can harvest that for foliage and for berries when the birds haven't eaten them. And it's around then now, it's because that holly is actually now there quite a long time, good at least 20 years, I would think. There's just masses of it, and it's terrific. And, you know, it's just absolutely terrific. And as you can see from looking at that, like, there's no wind going through the base of that wood. It's warm. And it's only when you get up higher that, that you can see that the wind filters through. But at the lower part of the ground there, it's it's absolutely... It's, it's full of, of course, we have foxes and we have pine martens back in now, thank goodness, because I seem to remember we had a conversation many years ago about grey squirrels. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> happily, the pine martin seems to have got rid of them. Mm. And therefore, we have no squirrel problem. We have red squirrels back, which is super. And the pine martin, you see them just fleetingly from time to time. They're a little sort of flash and they're, they're gone. And do you put that down to the holly? I put it down to having created an environment, in other words, creating wildlife habitats. By, instead of having just a big open field and a little hedge cut down to the butt, and there's nowhere for them to live, to shelter, to hang out in, to nest, to whatever. And if you create the environment, and the smallest bit can, can work wonders, and it's amazing, the wildlife just comes, it just arrives. As you can see across there, we have lines and lines of Holly, I planted a wide number of species because I looked into it, and Ilex aquifolium, our native holly, is lovely, beautiful, but you could buy 500 of them and you'd be lucky if you had 20 that actually produced berries. Now, so why is that? I have absolutely no idea. It's simply, if you go to a, any of the wholesale nurseries and you buy our hundreds and hundreds of, of trees, the male and the female, you end up with the majority of male. There's no way of telling when a little shrub is in a pot as to whether it's male or female. Well, I certainly don't know how. And the result is you have a whole pile of lovely holly trees, but they don't have berries. The ones that do have berries are fabulous. But I put in a number of other species like Silver Queen, Golden King, and J.C. Van Tal. It's a bread specifically for the floristry trade. And it is, from point of view of actually selling holly, it's fabulous because it produces a huge bumper crop of berries every year without fail. Now, of course, the birds love it also. Mm-hmm. And that was the kind of snag with the commercial end of it. Because in order to commercially produce holly for sale, you really need to net it. <laughs> I could not see myself netting sort of a mile of holly bushes all around the farm. <laughs> so I said, oh, what the hell, we'll cut what we have. And if we have buried holly, good. And if the birds have cleaned it all, which they do every year, so be it. And so that's where we're at at the moment with holly. But it's, it's absolutely lovely. And I mean, we've wood pigeons, my goodness, we've wood pigeons nesting all around the house here and the creepers and everything like that. And then you go out into the hen run, say, where I have a number of different species of holly bushes and there's at least six pigeons there gorging themselves on berries and then you've all that the blackbirds love them and the thrushes and the field fairs come in and it's just great to have something that feeding wildlife looks lovely and is nice to bring into the house and you think more farmers should plant holly 
Absolutely. I mean, it's look, it's a terrific thing if you've got a small wood or a copse or an edge of woodland or a corner of a field and maybe you have trees in it. You need holly as an understory. You need an understory of something because the base of the wood gets very drafty and wildlife don't like it so much that way. Whereas if you've got an understory of something and holly is ideal, it encourages in wildlife and it creates a sort of a, a more natural environment mm. for, for um, all kinds of creatures. But you is know. it commercially viable? As you said yourself, you couldn't see yourself netting all the holly and sure, what of it if the birds came and took all the berries? But that leaves you with little or nothing to sell. Well, if you're talking about growing it commercially, can you really? Can you? I'd say we sell probably about somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 quid's worth of holly every year, which is great. You know, now that sounds, oh, wow, 1,000 quid. It's, you know, you have to go out and pick it and put it into bunches and do all the rest and deliver it. But it's fun and it's nice and it pays for Christmas, yeah. more than pays for Christmas. So that's grand and that's lovely. But I wouldn't look on it for myself as a commercial thing. But there's, there are holly farms in England where they do actually go to the trouble of netting it and doing the whole thing correctly. But I, I'm getting too old. Is there anybody that. here doing that? Not that I know of. Yeah. It's Why do you think that is? Because surely it grows very well here. We've got good soil in Ireland. I think we're too bloody lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Because the Dutch are great at that sort of thing. They'll sort of say, oh, yeah, why don't we do this? And they'll do it. But we'll sort of say, oh, God, that wouldn't work. That Egypt, he's planted all <laughs> And that's where you're at. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. I really don't know. I think you have to have a liking for seeing wildlife around the farm. Yeah. And then you go and then it all kind of falls into place and you do it. But it undoubtedly does pay. And if I was a little more diligent about the whole thing, it would pay a lot better. My wife also makes reeds for, you know, hanging on the door and that kind of thing, using the holly and the ivy and what have you. The other thing about the ivy, you can see it there climbing up on everything. And people say, oh, my God, why don't you cut that ivy? It's dreadful. It's killing the trees, which, of course, it's not. It's the perfect symbiotic relationship because the ivy, actually, people say it helps trees. It gives a wind, a barrier to the Mm. wind, and it blows trees down. That is not the case because they sort of match each other. If a tree is about dying, the ivy will swamp it if it's about to die. But you must remember the roots of the ivy it's very strong and it's it's not living off the tree the tree is just a support no it's not getting its nutrients from the tree which is what a lot of people think that's right yeah no absolutely not it's getting its nutrients from the soil and the roots are anchored into the ground and they're actually helping the tree to remain stable rather than the other way around and then the other beauty about ivy is it's the last source of nectar for bees in late autumn, early winter. And apparently we would have no wild bees if it wasn't for ivy. It's just a fabulous plant for bats, insects, and the berries then, the birds again, the field fairs and the thrushes and the blackbirds and everything, they all feast on it. And that's why it pops up everywhere mm. because it's passing through the birds and it's all over the place. And it's, it's just super stuff. Now, holly gets taken, stolen, doesn't it? Yes, it does, unfortunately, and there are gangs going around the country and they're looking out for holly bushes and you won't see many of them because they've all been cut down and stolen. In fact, quite a funny story about my brother who lives in Trim and he had a most beautiful holly tree, which was probably 100 years old, a magnificent one sitting at the front of his house. And he was coming back through Trim and there was a market open 
and he was passing by and he saw these lovely bunches and he was admiring them of holly. He said, that's absolutely fabulous, isn't it? And then he drove in his gate and there was just a stump left in front of his house. <laughs> the tree was gone. So, particularly when you get into more rural areas, not so much in towns, obviously, because you're seen, but holly bushes in a, in hedgerows and things like that just get stolen, mm. caught, which is a pity. And has it ever happened to you? No, not that I know of, but um, I love holly. I, I simply cannot understand why more people don't plant it. It's not expensive, but one thing I will warn people is do not buy bare-rooted holly. Buy it in a pot. Bare-rooted holly tends to die. I, it just loves to die, and you could plant... 500 holly, if they're bare-rooted, you'd be lucky if 100 survive. So buy them in a pot. It's a little more expensive from a wholesale nursery, and you will have a lifetime of pleasure just enjoying the berries and the food you're supplying for the wildlife in general. And it just looks lovely, and it provides terrific shelter, and it's an ideal garden shrub. So, again, more people really should get out there and and plant it. (laughs) Thankfully... Not all holly is stolen. Connor Brown from Connor Brown Wreaths at Mountain View Farm in County Wicklow spoke to Terry Flanagan about the business of producing holly wreaths. Hi, Terry. Come on in out of Coa. My God, you're, you're way up here in the hills. <laughs> and not only is it cold, but it's very windy today. It is, it's very windy. Come on over here and I'll show you the holly wreath production, Terry. Now, the holly wreath is the traditional wreath. Um, and it is very, very popular in Ireland. So the first thing you have to do is you have to produce a ring, and you make this ring with a different plant. Exactly. So first you create a ring, and then afterwards the holly is tied to that ring. We've been producing wreath bases from end of September onwards. And this machine here, this is actually making the wreath base. Exactly. And it wraps everything to a nice even circle. So there's the perfect ring complete now. Exactly. So this is the, the ring fully finished. And as you can see now, as it comes out of the machine, it's very heavy. Yeah. And you need a good heavy base because the holly itself is very lightweight. The next part will be hand tying the holly onto the front of the wreath. And then after we move to the decoration, we're going to put on a, a proper set of gloves for this part, Terry, because... Uh, it's very prickly, It's very, holly. very prickly. Good quality holly. All our holly has plenty of light and it's grown out on its own with no competition. Which and is where very... do you source your holly? The holly is all homegrown here on the farm. We have over 4,500 holly trees. Uh, we have various different varieties and we have holly trees at various different stages. So every year we prune very, very small amount off each tree, uh, maximum 6 to 8 inches. And we get a crop every single year off. How many comes. per year would you make? Holly wreaths last year we would have produced in the region of 30 to 35,000 and I would be hoping to produce in the region of around 40,000 this year. I am limited on the number of holly wreaths we can make because it's a very tight time window. We only start to produce the holly wreaths around the 6th of December or so. And the holly wreaths will get busier as we go closer to Christmas. Christmas Eve is actually there, one of our busiest days. So. Now as I was driving up today, it was very, very windy. And yes. the first thing that struck me was does the wind not blow the berries off the trees? It does. The wind can blow the berries off the trees. The birds will also eat the berries. If you have 50 starlings in one tree, they can strip it in 60 seconds. Okay, we'll continue on there. We are, you're so now attaching we have, the holly we, now onto the base. Exactly. So we have the base completed on the machine. I now have tin green tie-in wire, which doesn't rust. And we're going to start by hand-tying the holly on. 
and you can hear the, yeah. the prickliness of the leaves. Hence you're wearing the gloves. We don't want any expletives on the radio. The holly needs to be tied twice to stop it twisting or coming loose. So each piece is tied two times, so it is time consuming. This part can really only be done by hand. There's no mechanized way as such to get them correct because the holly is so variable. And where do most of the holly reeds end up? Most of them would either end up on a front door or on the grave. It's a huge tradition in Ireland to put a wreath on the grave at Christmas and that's where you'll see a lot of a lot of wreaths if you walk over the Christmas period. Nearly uh, a majority of graves would always have a wreath of some description on it. Yuletide associations with holly and ivy run deep. Small wonder, therefore, that one of the most popular Christmas carols in the English language takes them as its subject. and the ivy has a long pedigree, having been sung in one form or another for at least 200 years. Although we are not entirely sure of its origins, we do have a good idea of when it came to prominence. Good morning, Carol. How are you? Very well, thank you. Hello, Derek. Well, nice to meet you. And here I am in Chipping Camden. It's a bit wet today, but still a glorious town you have here. Indeed. And all made of this honey-coloured limestone mm. through the ages all the houses from different times in the high street. The market hall, ooh, now when was that built? 1627, I think, although there were earlier houses than that, with their burgage plots. Our oldest house here is about 1380, built for a man called William Greville, who was a big wool merchant, and his tomb is in the church here with a, the biggest brass in Gloucestershire. I bet it has. And he thought he was the best of all the wool merchants in England. I'm with local historian Carol Jackson in Chipping Camden, a quintessential village in England's Cotswolds district, situated less than an hour's drive from Stratford-upon-Avon. It was here on Sheep Street in 1909 that Cecil Sharp, England's most celebrated and prolific collector of folk songs, met a local woman. Mrs. Mary Clayton, who sang for him the version of the Holly and the Ivy she had learned in her childhood. Well, this is the house that we think Mary Clayton lived in. It's called the Thatched Cottage, and she was probably born in the 1840s or something. People say that she used to come as a child to the vicarage here, or had relatives at the vicarage mm. here, and they think that she may have heard this Holly and the Ivy song when she was a child and remembered the words incorrectly. Yes. But it was in uh, 1909, on the 13th of January, that Cecil Sharp came to Camden. He was here because he was giving a talk about English folk song. And on that day, he apparently went to see Mrs. Clayton. And it's recorded in his records with this very date, the 13th of January 1909. It's recorded that he found a new song from Mrs. Clayton. He called her an old woman, but she was probably only in her 60s at that time. At least that's what we think from the census. That probably was old at the time. <laughs> it was, yes, yeah, you're yeah. right. So yes. live, live to your 60s. Yes. So the words that she sang to him, the words that he noted down... Ah, and Mary 
rose, sweet Jesus Christ, for to do poor sinners good. Whereas what we know is Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ. And she says that twice in her carol. So we think she might have heard it wrongly and remembered it incorrectly as a child. This is believed to be the origin of the carol. Well, it's where he found it and documented it in his notebook. Mm. That's all we can say. But there are other versions of it that were found elsewhere in Cornwall and uh, Somerset. I think he, he found different versions of it. And it was from all these different versions that he cobbled together what we know today as the one that we sing. As the holly and the ivy. As the holly and the ivy, yes. No, but she was first. She was the first person as, to sing this song as, to him as far as, as we know. As far as we know, nine, 1909. Oh, my God. Yes, so I know. Ago when you think about yes. it. And yet the carol is so familiar to everybody Absolutely, today. absolutely, yes, yes. Is it one of your favourites? It's one I sing often. I'm with a choir, and I'm with the church choir as well, and we often sing this, yes. Mm. And are people in Chipping Camden aware of the fact that this carol was first noted here? Not necessarily it, that it came from here, it was but noted. it was first noted here. Yeah, a lot of us do, yes. A history society especially. Yeah. yeah. And are you proud of that? Of course I'm proud of it. <laughs> The holly and the ivy, when they are both full grown Of all the trees that are in the wood, the holly bears the crown Whatever the origins and the original composition of the song, from the time that Cecil Sharp first published it in his collection English Folk Carols in 1911, it became standardised to the version that we all know and love today. Over the intervening period, the Holly and the Ivy has been performed by countless prominent solo artists, including Annie Lennox, Natalie Cole and Vanessa Williams. The Holly bears a prickle as sharp as any thorn And Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ on Christmas Day in the morn But for many of us, the carol really comes into its own as a choral performance. So I don't know if there's any point in being... Recently... I had the pleasure of attending St Anne's Church on Dawson Street in Dublin for a special recording of The Holly and the Ivy by the international award-winning chamber choir New Dublin Voices, which was founded in 2005 by conductor Bernie Sherlock. So this is The Holly and the Ivy, arranged by Walford Davies. We love it because it's such a jolly, traditional, well-known carol. Everybody knows it. And the text is really traditional. It's got the birth in it, it's got the holly kind of symbolic stuff with the prickles and the berries and the bitter bark and there are just so many arrangements of it. This, the, we love this one because it gives a chance to lots of singers to sing solo as well. It starts off with one voice, second voice comes in and then the whole choir and then goes to six parts later on. We leave you now with this wonderful performance of the Holly and the Ivy by the New Dublin Voices Choir. From everyone at Mooney Goes Wild, Happy Christmas.
as red as any blood, and many bore sweet Jesus Christ to do for sinners good. Oh, the rising of the sun and the dawning of the day, the playing on the organ, sweet singing in the sharp as any thorn, and Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ on Christmas Day in the morn. Oh, the rising of the sun and the running of the day, the playing on the merry organ, sweet singing in the As bitter as any gall, and Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ for to redeem us all. Oh, the rising of the sun and the running of the day, the playing on the merry organ, sweet singing, sweet singing. The Holly and the Ivy was presented and produced by Derek Mooney and the team will be back tomorrow afternoon with the story of a history-making giraffe. Zarafa is tomorrow afternoon at four here on RTE Radio 1.